0: Good morning. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I see some of you smirking already at my wonderful attire I chose this morning. Thank you. I hear one or two claps over there. Uh, <laughs> see, last week I told Chris I had to do this because last week, uh, those of you who don't know, the Eagles played the Dolphins last week. It only happens every four years and the Dolphins, I think the Dolphins won, didn't they? Can someone check me on that? Uh, <laughs> But Chris stood on this stage and talked about a fish fry that I was attending in Philadelphia or something along those lines. Well, I said, actually, actually what it was, it was a pre-Thanksgiving feast. I went down to some roasted bird is really what it was. Um, so with all that said, <laughs> had to do it. And I, honestly, I think I'll preach better today with this on. Um, I think is really what it is. <laughs> oh, goodness. Had to have some fun with that. Anyway. <laughs> With well, that said, you saw the video kind of getting us ready for the series that we're in and we're going to be in for the next four weeks and to kind of get us moving. I, wanted, I want to start out and introduce the series and then I want to kind of introduce what we're going to talk about this morning. To introduce the whole series, let me put a statement up on the screen for you. Truth does not transform. Now, when you see that, what do you think? What do you process? Do you think, um, do you think that's wrong? Do you think that's right? Do you think, uh, how does that make you feel? Truth does not transform. See, one of my concerns, this is why we're going to do this series. This is one of my concerns is that oftentimes when we think of the Christian faith and we did begin to define what is Christianity, I'm afraid that many people, both inside and outside the church and churches like ours, begin to think and define Christianity merely by what we think, what we believe, the doctrines that we hold to, the teachings that we hold on to, and we think, man, a person's a Christian if they have the right truth. Is that true? Is that what Christianity really is? Let me share my story just briefly to kind of talk about where this series comes from. As you look in our room right now, you look over here in this section and you'll see a lot of young people. you can wave at them if you want. They generally sit right over here. uh, Grant's waving. Now, when I was between the ages of 13 to 16, I grew up in a church, a church that preached the message of a strong Christian church. I grew up in a Christian home. I went to a Christian school up until eighth grade. Now, roughly between the age of around 13, 12, 13, into 14, I began to wrestle with, am I really buying what my parents have been selling for all those years? I began to kind of go through that natural, very normal process of beginning to say, is this stuff really legit? Now, I didn't sit over there. Here's what I actually sat in our church that I went to. Hi, sweetie. I sat right about here. Now, the reason I sat here is all the teens sat there. We didn't want to sit up here because we didn't want to look like we're all in. We didn't want to sit back there because we were afraid of looking like we're just a bunch of rebels and we're all out. So I sat over there, and as the the church service opened up, it was much like our service. I'm sitting there. I don't really want to be there. (laughs) honest. I really didn't want to be there, but yet I kind of did want to be there. I'm mean, that stage. I'm just wrestling. The service would open up and generally had some music that happened. Now we had a, a director of music from the time I was little all the way up through. It was kind of a, a paid position to church. I grew up in and they bring in orchestrated music and they had all this powerful music. And, and then there's this, I still remember her name vividly. Renee Willard, one of the pastor's daughters and Rick Bernhardt was the other guy. Uh, and they would come up on stage and they would sing. Usually they would sing some kind of mock. Modern uh, contemporary song. And here I am as a 13 to 16 year old young person sitting over there, kind of half checked out. But when music began to happen, my heart something would happen inside of me. Uh, that's why again, just a little side note, I'm so passionate about what we do up here. Music is hugely important, and it's important that it speaks to young people. Very, very important. Now little rabbit trail to hunt. So I'd sit over there. Then the pastor would come to the stage. And he began to talk. And here's what I did almost inevitably every week when the pastor came to the stage. I'd give him about 30 seconds. And after about 30 seconds, I moved into, well, who are the dolphins playing this afternoon and who are they going to beat or how's it going to go? Or I began to daydream about the girl that dumped me or the girl that I was hoping to ask out, or I began to process about the big ticket item I was saving my money for or here, a little dark secret. I began to daydream about scoring the winning touchdown for Penn state one day and i have all this crazy stuff going on in my mind, or I just simply sit there and doodle. But generally I was sitting there completely and totally checked out. Why? Because I believe our church held to the thinking that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they were passionate about truth. And I'm thankful for that. Truly, Christians need to believe and think right. But I've come to realize that what, here's what checked me out. is What that pastor was telling may have been very true, but it had no bearing on my life. How does it, I began to ask the questions, how does this great theory and doctrine and belief, what does it really have to do with how I'm going to handle my parents this week or my teachers or the girl that dumped me? What does it really have to do with how successful my life is going to be, where I'm getting my significance and meaning? What does this really have to do with life? It seemed very disconnected, which is why over the years, here's what I've come to believe. Truth doesn't necessarily transform, but applied truth does. Applied truth is what transforms. That's what Christianity is really all about. It's not just about having the right thinking, but then knowing how that right thinking impacts my heart and fleshes out itself in life. Now I'd love to get into the verses, but he say, Adam, where do you get this? If again, we're, we're a church. It's passionate. I want you to search and seek for yourself, and and wrestle with stuff. So Matthew five twenty four would be one verse where you could wrestle with this. John eight thirty one to thirty two, which is the classic verse that says, "If you know the truth, the truth will set you free." Well, the verse the verse that comes right before it it says, "If you abide in my truth, then you will know the truth, and it will set you free." So there's a living before there's a knowing. Very interesting how sometimes churches just hammer on truth, but we miss the abiding and practicing. And then the other classic teaching on this is Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20, where Jesus doesn't say, go and instruct the world on all the right thinking. He says, go and teach them to obey everything that I have taught you. So there's a clear link. So again, applied truth transforms. So here's the heart of this series. Uh, let me share our children's ministry. If you're any of you are in our children's ministry and you get these uh, small group sheets and, and life group sheets uh, for the children, you'll see. I think this is on just with someone correct me. I think this is on just about every week. Uh, Rachel, I'm not sure if it's original with Rachel or whether it's something she pulled from somewhere, but it says, The goal of discipleship, which is this challenging our those who work with children to be discipling these kids. The goal of discipleship is not learning about faith, but living out faith. That's the heart of this series. It's to take some deep doctrinal teachings and wrestle with, well, okay, so we believe that. What does it really mean to my life? And how, how does that really, is that really practical to the way I live my life? Though a little side note, uh, if any of you have kids and go down to pick your kids up and you see Rachel, today is her birthday, by the way. Uh, so give her a high five, give her a hug, whatever works for you. Uh, let her know happy birthday. And um, she's too wearing a shirt this color. It's not the dolphins though, I notice. it's a, so here's where we're going to go in the next four weeks, this week and the next three. Uh, we're going to just unpack some doctrinal teachings, It's some, some big words, oftentimes uh, justification, regeneration, propitiation. We're just going to unpack something and say, okay, what, do they, what are they? What is the truth of them? And then how do they really impact my life? And when I want to give credit where credit is due, there's a book by Robert McGee, is his name, Search for Significance. It has been out a long time. I read it in college 20 years ago. Uh, I was in counseling this past year, and the counselor said to me, Adam, have you ever read Search for Significance? There's some things we were wrestling with. And I said, yeah, back in college. He said, I'd encourage you to pick it back up and uh, work through it again. So, again, I pulled it back off my shelf, went back through it. And again, powerful teachings So this sermon series is not, you read the book, you aren't going to, it's going to sound different, uh, but I just want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of his thoughts have spurred some of the things that Chris and I will be talking about over the next uh, couple of weeks, but to get us going for this morning, that's kind of where we're going for the whole series. We're going to kick off with the, the theological teaching of justification. What is justification? What does the Bible teach that it is? And then how does it really impact my life? Now here's where the verse we're going to start with. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 1. I'm going to give it to you the ESV. um, The New Living, which we have in our uh, seats in front of us, they have little asterisks on this verse, and you'll see in there they kind of suggest two different um, opportunities for the way this verse is translated. The ESV captures the one um, only. And I think this is probably the best one available. It says, For our sake, he made him, referring to Jesus, for our sake. He made Jesus, he made him, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That verse, in a nutshell, is what we believe the Christian teaching of justification. So in, he made Jesus to be what? Sin. Think about that. Jesus, he made him to be sin, but yet he really knew no sin. So he didn't really sin. He lived a sinless life, but yet God dumped all the sin of humanity on him. So there's a reason he did that so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So if you put your faith in Jesus, you are righteous. Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, if any of you are familiar with him, lived a long time ago, uh, said that he kind of has, he uses this verse and he calls this the great exchange. The great exchange. So what it is, it's basically God taking all of my sin and placing it on Jesus and me getting all of God's righteousness and Jesus' righteousness placed on me. Look at it like uh, an accounting term. Okay? Uh, when I was in school back in the early 90s, we didn't have all the cool computers we have today. And I took an accounting class and discovered then that you don't want me around numbers. It's not my gift set. Uh, let's pass on that. Uh, but so I had, I learned, though, in that, in that one semester of work, I learned the, uh, what ledgers were and then credits and debits and kind of how to work all this. And I learned that in that world, you have these ledgers. And so on this, imagine going to the bank. Okay, so you go to Effort National Bank, which holds our mortgage on our home. So if you go to Effort National Bank and type in Adam or Tanya Nagle, and up's going to come on the screen a whole ledger. And on that ledger is our debt that we still owe to that bank, a lot of debt yet to pay off our house. Now imagine someone coming along who equally is a customer at African National Bank and they type in their name and what pops up on their screen isn't any, they don't have a mortgage. They've got all this credit, all this, all this wealth and personal wealth. And they say, you know what? We want to give that wealth to this account. So next time someone comes, the next time I go into African National Bank and I type in and pops up, they don't see debt. They now see a lot of income. That's simply what justification is. It's simply taking the ledgers and swapping them. So Jesus gets my debt and I get Jesus' righteousness. So imagine this. So you're a sinner. You're born a sinner. Past, present, and future sin. So you grew up, you were born, you were raised. All the sin that you've committed up until this point. Now, some of you say, well, that's a lot of sin. Yeah, it is. All the sin that you've committed today, that you will commit today, that you'll commit tomorrow and this week, present, all the stuff that you've gone on now, and then all of your sin yet to happen, because you're going to sin again, it's going to happen, none of you are going to live perfect, and God says, okay, that is you, so God comes to the computer, types in your name, up comes, wow, there's a lot of sin. Now, Jesus lives this life, and Jesus lives a perfect, sinless life. Now, as he lives sinless, he also satisfies by living not only just without sin, but he lives with perfect morality and perfect holiness and has all this goodness and all this righteousness. And what happens is when you put your faith in Jesus, you get Jesus' righteousness dropped on you, and he takes your sin. It's justification, the great exchange. So when God comes to the computer and types it in, Adam Nagel, what pops up to him is nothing. He doesn't see sin. What does he see? Righteousness. Goodness, perfection. It's what he sees when he looks at Adam because I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Here's how I say justification. It's a big fancy word for saying in Jesus, I am fully pleasing to God. If I've placed my faith and my trust and I've said, God, I trust Jesus Christ that he is the son of God, that he died and paid a price for me. I'm putting my faith in him. I am fully pleasing, 100% pleasing to God. Now, let's unpack this and make it practical. Because I think in this room, a room this size, there's a lot of people who struggle with this. You read that on the screen and say, okay, Adam, I know that that's what the Bible teaches, but I don't really feel it. And I'm not quite sure how to live that out or what impact it really makes in my life day in and day out. And I think, I want to push in this one. I think the reason we struggle with this is because many of us in this room fear failure. We, we see the word pleasing and we link the word performance. I've got to perform. No one in your life loves you just because you put your faith in them. Your wife doesn't do it. Your husband doesn't do it. Your parents don't do it. You think, well, i got to perform to gain acceptance. Everywhere in life, that's how it works. You say, so how does it work? How does this really flesh itself out? Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 5. we're going to wrestle with this reality that many of us link pleasing and performance. We think, well, I've got to meet a standard. I have to hit a standard to feel good about myself. I have to hit a certain standard so that God feels good about me. I have to hit a certain standard to satisfy God. Well, let's wrestle with that. Romans chapter 5, some page 938 of the Bible is there in the seats in front of you. Romans chapter 5. It's going to unpack uh, that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's going to take it. And there's this same writer. uh, He's going to unpack this now with a little more teaching around it. Romans chapter 5. Start out of verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith. So again, how God looks at you and you've been made right in his sight, righteous, justified. How, what is it from? Is it because you went to church? Is it because you obeyed your parents? Is it because you gave 10% of your income? Is it because you helped the poor? You adopted kids? You sent shoeboxes on to another country? What is it that makes you right? Look what it says. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because, here it's going to restate it, because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. So I'm at peace with God. I'm fully satisfying to him. We're we're good, (laughs) You're going to see we actually become friends of God. You're going to see that language a little later. So we're good. Why? Because I obeyed the rules, because I held a certain standard, because I performed, because no, it's simply because I put my faith in Jesus Christ and in him, I'm fully pleasing. Verse two, because our faith, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. There again, I didn't perform for it. I didn't work for it. It's actually not even deserved and earned it's just given to me as a gift it's 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 something that i didn't even i didn't even gain undeserved privilege continue reading verse 2 where we now stand And we confidently, so this isn't just something, oh, I think this is how God views me. I confidently can be sure that in Jesus, I am fully pleasing to God and we're at peace and God and I, we're close, confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. So because of this, I can look forward to that day when I will be in heaven with him and when my, see, here's the reality. The scriptures teach that when I accept Jesus, I still have my old self with me, but yet I'm now a new person. And one day, the old's going to be completely going, I'm going to be with him one day. And I can stand confidently because of my faith in Jesus Christ. Now, verse three, verse three is, I believe, where the practical rubber meets the road. Verse three, I think, is the test. Do you really believe that in Jesus, you're fully pleasing to God? Well, here's the question I'd ask. How do you handle hardship in your life? Verse three, I think, opens us up to this. Verse three. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Now, how many of you, when you hit a hardship, when you hit trouble, when things don't go your way, how many of you rejoice? Now, if I ask for a show of hands, I think the honest in the room would keep your hand down. We struggle with this. I think the reason we struggle, as I thought about it, I reflected again on this again this week, something I thought about for years. I think the reason we struggle is because most of us in this room live with what I would call a low-grade disease of up and to the right. We think, in other words, that we chart life. Life will be good for me. Life is going well. God is happy. I am happy. I am satisfied when I am moving my life up and to the right, consistently getting better, consistently improving. And when I constantly am getting better and I'm constantly performing well, things are good for me. That's kind of how we live life. We have this low-grade addiction to success. And I think most of us in this, most of us, not all of us, some of you, I I, I know this isn't true, some of you, uh, but a lot of us fear failure. Failure is not an option. After you even say that, you get a little, Adam, are you suggesting we can fail? Failure is an option. It has to be an option. A lot of us run from and hide from it. And I think we begin to think, and we may never voice it, but when things go bad for us, we begin to have this self-doubt. Does God love me? Is God still there? Is God happy with me? Am I out of sync with him? Is he frowning? Am I really pleasing him? And the things begin to turn down. They're no longer moving up and to the right, but now down and to the left. And we begin to maybe sometimes even sit down and doubt our salvation. Am I even a Christian? I think it's, well, comes back to, you're fully pleasing to God in Jesus. And if I really believe that, that's why I think the test is how do you handle hardship? If I really believe that when the hard times came, I don't look at it as an indictment on my relationship with God and how I'm doing in life, I think I begin to say, okay, it's an opportunity to walk with him. Look at the rest of this, look at the rest of this section here. Verse three, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. Now, pause. I wanna, that doesn't mean they're going to be fun and easy. When you read the psalmist, they cry and they hurt and they they cry out to God. So it's not doesn't rejoice doesn't mean, oh, I'm gonna just put a smiley, happy face on a Pollyanna attitude about hardship. That's not what it's saying, but saying, okay. Keep reading here. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. I believe with all my heart, you will never experience the true love of God until you've walked with him through a dark valley. And many of us want to run away from it because we think, well, God's not happy with me. I'm no longer going up and to the right. The success is beginning to wane. What does it say about me? And so much of our worth and our identity is tied to success and not failure. Now, success is a wonderful experience. I'm not suggesting that we set out to fail. Success is a wonderful experience unless we're driven to it. And what I mean by that, if we're gaining our worth and our value, and in other words, my success then says, I'm worth something. That's a problem at that point. Success is not healthy at that position. And I think many of us, what we begin to do with this is we define success then with external standards. I've got to hit this and I've got to do that. As opposed to just simple faith in Jesus and obedience to him as a response. And what we do then is we work really hard to meet these external standards. This is where we get these lo- this life of rules and, and, and regulations. And on one extreme, you have the perfectionist. On the other extreme, you have the person who's just absolutely despairing because, well, I can't be perfect, so woe is me. I'm just a loser. And over here, you got the person that's like, no, you can do it. And they hit the standard, and we work really hard. I think verses 3 to 5 say you're pleasing to God. Step into the trial, walk with him, experience his love. Here's how I see this happen. Let me share, uh, share my own personal story. This happened to me uh, three weeks ago. I think, again, this is my story. So see if you can pull maybe a story from your own life that may relate to this. I was sitting, uh, we have a football banquet. Uh, Chris and I actually got to coach this year together. And it wasn't a great season. We didn't win a game all year. Had a lot of drama at the coaching level. and uh, But again, we had fun together, I think. And we enjoyed the ministry that it is and building relationships with the community. And and so here we come now to this banquet at the end of the year. And he and I are thinking, what do we have to celebrate? I mean, why are we going to a banquet? We were losers. Uh, so when we sit down at Shady Maple, and you know, but I think, well, hey, a free meal is prime rib night, too, of all things. So I'm like, score. So we, we sit down at Shitty Mabel. So I end up at a table with a bunch of people that I don't know. So it's parents of players on the team. So we, when you sit with people you don't know, what do you begin to do? <laughs> you ask questions, right? Hi, my name is. And you shake hands and you talk to each other. And, and generally, you ask questions like, what do you do for a living? Where, where are you from? Did you always live there? And, ta- ta- and so you get into this conversation. Through the conversation, the, the wife kind of sitting at an angle across from me hears that my wife, and I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina for a period. Um, now, so she begins to get excited about that, and she says to her husband, "Oh, honey, that's where we want to move." And as, as she starts talking all this excitement about Charlotte and then the Carolinas. So she turns to me and she says, well, "Tell me, was it was it fun to live there?" Now, those of you know my story, I was only there nine months, <laughs> and it wasn't a lot of fun. I went down and we—I failed. One of the biggest failures I've ever had in life. And we went down to plant a church, and it was a failure. Now, so she looks at me and says that. I look back at her and in my spirit, I twinge. I have this reservation. I hold something back. Why is that? Why did I hold back? Why was I afraid to step towards her and give her the real answer? No, I was a loser. (laughs) I failed bad. I went down there to do something. It didn't work out. Why did I want to hold that? I can look at that. I can say God called me there. I believe that. I can look back and say, yeah, my marriage all but fell apart, but boy, the things that I've learned and I've walked with and I know today and I'm much more mature, I've experienced God's love in ways I didn't understand before, and I can say all that is so true, but here I am twinging and holding back, I think it's because I reflected on it in the following week in my journal. I said, you know what it was? I tied too much of my worth and my value to my successes, and when I begin to think of failure i worried what they think of me, what I think of me. And so I looked at her and I said, well, I was only there nine months. So let's hope she just lets that go. Well, she didn't. She says, nine months, that's all, why? <laughs> so I looked at her and swallowed hard and said, well, I went down to start a church and it failed, didn't make it. Now, there was awkwardness. She didn't say a lot in response. Conversation was kind of ended at that point. I went and got my prime rib and moved on. (laughs) But again, I think my experience is not that uncommon to most of our experiences. We don't like to own up to failure. We like to be moving up and to the right. We we tie a lot of worth and value into our successes. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, if you do that, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Find your identity in me. Find your worth and your value and understand it in Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are fully pleasing. Now look at the rest of this. This chapter is just powerful. It says, when we were utterly helpless. So This is going to describe those of you who are Christians... This is going to describe what happened to you. Those of you who are here, you'd say, well, I'm not a Christian. This is how you become a Christian. It's kind of going to look at it this way. When you were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Catch this. He didn't come for this really nice guy or girl. He came for a sinner. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. So translation, if your kid needed your, a kidney, the chances of you giving him your kidney is pretty high. If your kid needs something from you to, to live and sustain in life, and, and by you doing it, it could risk your life, I'm going to state most, probably most cases, if you're a parent worth your weight notes, you're going to step towards them and give up what it is that you have, even if it risks your life. Most of you in this room would say, yeah, I'd die for my husband, I'd die for my wife, I'd die for my kids. I'd, most of you say, yeah, that's normal, we do that. But would you step out and give up of your life for your, for your enemy? We all have them. The person that you hate with everything in you, the person that you know hates you. Would you die for them? No. But it's what God did for us. So you continue reading, verse, verse eight. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, how are you made right? This is justification. How are you made right? How are you justified? Christ's blood. Not going to church, not believing all the right things. Not, it's Christ's blood. He certainly, verse 9, and since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Powerful teaching. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Isn't that a cool teaching? You are God's friend. Why? How? Not because of anything you have done, it's because of what he has done for you. See, I think here's where most of us trip on this. I think a lot of us have this idea well, of course, God came for me. Who wouldn't die for me? I'm a pretty good guy. I'm lovable. I'm good looking. I root for the dolphins. I mean, come on. A lot of us think this secretly. We don't really understand that we were his enemy, we were not warm and fuzzy. God did not look down and do it. He looked down and said, there is my enemy. There is a sinner. He didn't look down and say, okay, now, Adam, take some steps towards me. Then I'll step towards you. He said, no, I know you can't walk towards me until I give of my son, Jesus Christ. And then and then only does it restore this relationship. And by putting my faith in him, I become his friend. Now, verses 12 to 19. I'm not going to teach them. We uh, don't have time for that. Uh, but basically, here's what they teach. And you can read them this week. Uh, basically, they teach sin entered humanity through one person. His name was Adam. Adam and Eve. Okay, sin comes... Because one man sins, it says all people sin. So sin comes into the human race through one person. Therefore, the logic, what Paul's he's trying to logic how because sin can come in through one person, certainly we ought to understand that righteousness and goodness can come through one person. So that's kind of what he teaches, and that person is Jesus. Now, verse 20 then wraps it up. God's law... Which we talked about the last six weeks in our series, Etched in Stone. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Justification. In Jesus, I have right standing with God. In Jesus, I am fully pleasing to God. In Jesus, I am God's friend. In Jesus, I have peace with my creator. Why? It has nothing to do with my performance, my success, my, my statement on whether I failed. or It has nothing to do with it. In Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You are pleasing to God. Here's where we want to really push in and make this. I want to, some of you are sitting here going, okay, Adam, I hear that. I know that. Here's where the tension comes. After years of teaching this, after years of wrestling in my own spirit with, can this really be true? After years of this, in fact, I remember the first time I preached to Romans 5 was to it was about 50 to 75 teenagers, and I bored them to death. It was my second sermon I ever preached. Until I got done, I wanted to get out of the room because they just all had this look on their face like, Adam, what are you talking about? It was like 45, 50 minutes long, which you preach to teenagers, that's way too long. And there's them, and they were all sitting here like this. I mean, they were just tuned out. I walked off, and I I said, oh, I I just taught it like a professor. It was way over their head. From that point, the first time I ever preached this, and I've taught on it many times since, the number one pushback. When we start talking this way, is this. But Adam, 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 if we're gonna really teach this and, and this objection to living full throttle towards this teaching, you know what it does? It promotes sin. In other words, Adam, 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 okay, okay, teach that, but make sure along with that you talk about God's law because we wanna make sure the guardrails are set up so people don't drop off or the slippery slope doesn't start. And we get into all this slippery slope and all this fear of what could happen. Now, it's a natural thought. Look at chapter 6. I'm not going to look at all, just look at the first couple of verses. It's natural to think that way. Okay, if we're just going to talk about God's amazing grace, well, then, well, pfft, I'm just going to go and here it is, verse 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Um, In the book, book Search for Significance, as Robert McGee talks about justification, here's one of the things he says. Understanding our complete forgiveness and acceptance before God does not promote a casual attitude towards sin. On the contrary, it gives us a greater desire to live for and serve the one who died to free us from sin. Here's how I've learned to say this. When you come back to how I started, a lot of us begin to think Christianity is having the right truths, which certainly the right truths are important. But grace... What I have learned, grace is not a doctrine. Grace is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And same as I would never in a million years, when I proposed to my wife, I didn't get down on one knee in front of 150 teenagers that were there working at a camp all summer long. I got down in front of all these teenagers, and I had these roses, and I didn't look at her and say, sweetie, will you marry me? Now, wait a minute, before you answer, before you answer, I said, well, it's one little, one little thing I want to state. I, I just want one day a week. You know, I'll give all of myself to you, but 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 one day, and on that one day, I just want to make sure I leave my options open for for these other girls, and 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 you never know who I might find somewhere down the road. I'm just going to give you that one day. Just give, can you give me that one day? Now, what if i done that? No. If you were a healthy female, would you respond to a man who got down on his knee to do that? It seems absurd. It's like a silly Adam. It's a silly illustration. I would equally say it's awful silly when we understand what Christ did for us and we understand that grace is a person, not a doctrinal, not a doctrine that we ascribe to, but it's a person who loved us, who died for us, who gave everything for us and is calling us to respond to that. It is awful silly for me to worry about having to put guardrails up. I'm going to live for him. See, it's a hu- natural human response to love in response to love. When someone deeply loves you, what do you want to do? What do you kind of have this twinge? You want to give something back the deeper and the bigger, the love the greater the desire to give back to them. And that's how the Christian faith works. And we understand that grace is a person. His name is Jesus. When I was a sinner far from God, he stepped towards me. When I understand that love, but see, I think a lot of us struggle with this motivation, love being a motivator because a lot of us don't really believe. Please hear me in this. I believe with all my heart. There are many of you in this room that don't really to the core believe that God's love is truly unconditional. You struggle with that thought. Of in Jesus, I am fully pleasing. You struggle with really getting to the core of you. You need to tell me that in Jesus, I don't need to perform. No, you don't need to perform. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and you are pleasing to him. And when we don't grasp that. No, you're right. Love isn't going to motivate you because you don't see it as love. You see it as reward for your great works. And that is going to promote a casual lifestyle towards sin. Say, Ann, think about this. How much different would your life be? How much different would your life be if it were not for the fear of failure? If your identity were just, some of the strings were cut to the, the identity wrapped around success and performance. How different would your life be if failure were not a statement of who you are and what you're worth? You know, I think from a human perspective, any of you know, Kristen, Kristen Anderson Lopez, you know who she is? Anyone in this room? Some, some of you surely know who she is. She wrote a song, a very famous song. You know what song she wrote along with her husband? I'll try and sing a bar of it. All of you are like, yes, (laughs) let it go. Let it go. Come on, sing it with me. Come on, jump in. (laughs) You all know it, right? You know, the song, you know, the movie we laugh because we know it. we've heard that song a million times. Kristen, Kristen Anderson Lopez, along with her husband was commissioned by Disney to write the music for frozen. She wrote 18 songs. Do you know how many of them made it into the movie? One song. It was let it go. 17 times. She failed. Check it out online. It's a great story. 17 times she delivered songs to Disney that they said, Nope, sorry, no good. Now, you know what? Most of us, when we have our identity all wrapped up in our successes. What do you walk away? Oh, woe is me. I'm such a loser. I will never make it. I'm worth nothing. I'm a terrible songwriter, but she persisted, delivered, let it go. And here's the story. Some of you might know this. The original script for the movie, Elsa, the snow queen, uh, the villain, she was a conventional villain. And where that song was supposed to play, Elsa was coming downhill to take over the town with her army of marshmallow snow people. Now, those of you who watch the movie know that that didn't happen, right? Why didn't it happen? Because when Disney heard that song, they recognized the emotional power of it. And they said, oh, my goodness, we have to rewrite the movie to fit the song, which seldom ever happens in Hollywood. You generally have the story, find music that goes with it. Here you had the song and they rewrote the script to fit the song. It was her 18th song. 17 were turned down. How different would our lives be if we weren't afraid of failure? If our identity and worth wasn't all wrapped up in in what people think of us and, and might say about us and what people accept and don't accept about me. Now that's a human story. Let me share one that from, from this end, from a spiritual side of it. Second Samuel. I want to read the verses, make a few comments and pray. "The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He restored me because of my innocence. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God to follow evil. I have followed all his regulations. I have never abandoned his decrees. I am blameless before God. I have kept myself from sin. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He has seen my innocence. Do you know who wrote those words? David. Do you know who David was? A big sinner. (laughs) These were written at the end of his life. And I remember as a young person, I was 20 years old. I I'm, I'm in a Bible college for, and I don't really quite know why I'm there, but I'm trying to figure life out. And I'm, and I'm sitting down doing my assignments. We were supposed to read from Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible, and at each chapter, give our own title to the chapter. So I get to 2 Samuel 22, and I remember this vividly. I'm sitting in this small little cabin by this frozen lake in the middle of the winter thinking, why am I here? I don't want to be here. I want to go home. I hate this place. And this thought hits me, and I'm reading it, and God speaks to my heart. I'm like, no, wait a minute. This is a bunch of garbage. And I pushed in on it because David committed adultery. David murdered someone. He lied about it to cover it up. And that's just, that's just the big stuff we know of David. He was a terrible father. His, I mean, he was a horrible father. He violated God's commandment. And God says of the kings, you should not multiply wives. Well, he did. You can go on down to stuff that David does. And here you are at the end, So here I am at 20 years old reading this for the very first time going, now, wait a minute. So it engaged my heart. So I stepped towards it to figure this out. Well, what is this really about? And then I come across the passage in Acts, which says of the New Testament writers looking back at David, and they say this, he was a man after God's own heart. And then it clicked for me. I'm like, you know what it is? David understood grace, the doctrine of grace, unlike most of us in this room. It wasn't just a theory and a belief and something that you ascribe to. It was a person and his name was a creator. And he, at that point, was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah where we look back and he is saying, man, I've been touched by him. And he responds and he understands that when God looks down at him, God looks at an innocent man because his faith was in God. You know, a lot of times when I'm asked the question, Adam, how does God view you? I'll preface it by saying this. Well, in God's eyes, it's almost as if I'm saying, it's almost as if I'm saying, well, God's really not attached to reality. He's kind of deceiving himself and he's, he's kind of put this cover.'" No, 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 no. What I'm learning to say in the last couple years is when, how does God see you, Adam? I forget in God's eyes. I just say, you know, how he sees me. He sees me as righteous. He sees me as pleasing. He sees me and he says, I love you because you have your faith in Jesus Christ. I don't see a ledger of sin. I see a ledger of righteousness because there has been an exchange. And when I can get my head around that, I promise you, this is one of the doctrines. It's not just a truth that we ascribe to. It will impact your every decision as you walk through life. No longer will your identity and worth be wrapped up in your successes and your your feelings on, on failure. But they'll be wrapped up in understanding, I'm a child of God. I'm loved. I'm his friend. And from there, we step into life with bold courage. And we walk through hardship, knowing that on the backside, I'm going to experience his love more intimately than I ever have before. I can't wait to get through this. I'm going to pray for us. And this week I found a pastor online. I never heard of him actually um, to this. He actually turned out he was a former. I just actually discovered this backstage because they were backstage and, who is this guy? So I quick Googled him. I, like, I don't know who is he? I have a to know that. Uh, so here's a former uh, NFL football player who has a church in South Carolina. Uh, so I found a little clip, um, found a clip uh, by him and I want to pray for us. Uh, the ushers will come and throughout this clip and, and, We'll have opportunity to give. And again, that's when you turn in your connection card that Chris referenced earlier. Maybe you can share prayer requests, respond to this message. Maybe God's touched you in some way. And, and uh, again, opportunity to say I'm here, number one, but number two, connect. Uh, and then give. Just opportunity to give and say, God, you know what? I love you. I want to give in response to what you've done for me, not begrudging and dutifully, but just in response and worship you. Uh, So that's going to take place. And then the team's going to come on stage and just close with a powerful song. It's a worn out song, I think, by now. I'm not putting the team down, but it's the song, Oceans, Where Feet May Fail. Uh, That song's all about fear. That song's all about having your identity in the person of God and following him out into the deep and and not being all concerned about what could happen, but saying, I'm following in obedience to my creator because I'm loved and he's pleased with me. So let me pray for us and then uh, we'll close our service out. God, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. My simple prayer right now, God, is for every person in this room. i just going to pray it very passionately and boldly. God, it's that every person in this room would have their faith firmly planted in Jesus Christ and that they would know to the depth of their soul that they are pleasing to you. That you smile on them, not because of their performance, but because of their faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.